Well, beloved, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn uh, to Luke chapter 2, as uh, this morning uh, we will look at uh, these two uh, scenes from the birth narratives. Uh, Over the past several weeks, if you're just joining us this morning, we have been walking through the early birth narratives uh, of Luke chapter uh, 1, and now we come uh, to the birth of Christ in chapter 2. We'll uh, be looking at uh, verses 1 uh, through uh, 20, uh, but really focusing in on verses 1 through 7 this morning. And uh, just for context, wanted to take us into the fields uh, with the rejoicing angels this morning. Well, please stand for the reading of God's Word, beginning in Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it, wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? O Lord, we pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds, that we would receive And apply and believe and respond to all that is found here in your holy word. O Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Robert Murray McShane was a free church minister in Dundee, Scotland in the early part of the 19th century. In his celebrated memoirs, he wrote about a moving story of missionary zeal and sacrifice of two Moravian missionaries. I have shared this story before. It is a moving one. 
The story took place in the southern part of Africa where a form of leprosy was ravaging parts of the population. In order to contain the disease, uh, the lepers had to be quarantined in a kind of walled town or city. There was only one entrance to this vast area, and this entrance was heavily guarded so that when the infected person was brought in, they would never again be allowed to leave. A certain missionary from the Church of England noticed from the top of a neighboring hill two of the lepers in this walled area working in a field. As a consequence of the leprosy, one of them had lost their feet and the other one had lost his hands. Leprosy, of course, is a disease which eats away at your limbs. The two worked together. The one without feet was on the back of the one without hands, so that with his hands he could throw the seed, and the other man with feet could walk and stamp seed into the soil. My, how we feel sorry for ourselves sometimes. We know little of this kind of suffering in our day. We know little of this kind of suffering. Leprosy is a disease that slowly eats away at one's limbs and appendages. It was the worst of diseases. And it still exists in many parts of the world today. This horrible, highly contagious disease, however, did not stop two Moravian missionaries from making their life's work the preaching of the gospel to this leper colony. They did not do their ministry from a safe place outside the city walls. They didn't throw gospel tracts and Bibles over the walls, which we certainly wouldn't have blamed them if they had done that. No. In an indescribable act of love, they themselves, these two Moravian missionaries, entered the walled city. They enter this heavily guarded front gate of this highly contagious area knowing that they would never leave again. They did this in order to be with the lepers, not just to preach to them, but to serve among them and to eventually become one of them in their disease. These Moravian missionaries left the comforts of Germany to suffer and eventually to die among these lepers in Africa. Why? in order to bring them good news. The good news that the angels celebrated in the fields. The good news of a Savior who left the glories of heaven to come to this sin-torn world and bear the disease of our sin and then to pay for our sin on the cross. And isn't this the true meaning of Christmas? Isn't this the true meaning of Christmas? Stripping away all of the confusion about why we celebrate Christmas. We see the Son of God becoming one of us, entering this sin-torn, leprous, spiritually leprous world in order to bear our guilt and to bear the judgment of God in our stead on Calvary. However, in our highly political culturally sensitive, relativistic age, we have become experts at watering down this Christmas message so as not to commit the sin, the ultimate sin, of offending anyone. 
Even wishing people a Merry Christmas has become highly offensive in our culture and some public places. Dear friends, what we remember this morning, even here on Christmas morning, is that the focus of Christmas is not upon what gifts we give or what gifts we receive or on renewed family relationships as much as we love our families. No, the main focus of Christmas is this greatest of all gifts that's been given to us by our Heavenly Father above, the inexpressible gift that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, namely the gift of the Son of God, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, born in order to save us from the tyranny and eternal wages of sin. Well, in our text for this morning, we are informed by Luke that God was faithful to his promise to, a- to Adam in the garden, uh, to Abraham in the desert, uh, to David in Jerusalem, and to Mary in Nazareth. The Savior of the world has come. Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. Behold, the King of glory waits. The King of kings is drawing near. The Savior of the world is here. That was the message of the angels. It was what was prophesied in the Old Covenant and has been fulfilled in Christ. And in our text for this morning, which in many ways is a very simple text and yet has so much for us to consider... The first point in our outline is this, imperial decrees and divine providence. Imperial decrees and divine providence. And then in verses 6 and 7, we have the king of glory born in a cattle stall. The king of glory born in a cattle stall. First of all, imperial decrees and divine providence. Imperial decrees and divine providence. Look with me again at verses 1 through 5. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary and his betrothed, who was with child." Let us notice, first of all, the superior quality of Luke as a historian. A historian. He is communicating these things, of course, to Theophilus. As we look at the beginning of chapter 1, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are written to what was likely a Roman official named Theophilus, who was, uh, it would seem, thinking about the Christian faith, seeing a lot of Christians, hearing this gospel message, and Luke is giving Theophilus, and by the way, all of us, an account of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the early church. So Luke wrote this, uh, this uh, two-volume work, Luke and Acts. And so he is, he is writing this, and he's doing so giving historical context. If you read the Hindu Vedas, you read other kinds of so-called holy books, you'll see a lot of myth sprinkled in there, and people have no problem with that. But as Christians, we believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Amen? And that every part of it is factual. We've just finished uh, through uh, going through the book of Jonah. Uh, we don't believe that's myth or fairy stories. We believe uh, all that took place there, even as our Lord Jesus believed uh, in the story of Jonah. And so we, we believe these things, uh, and they are recorded here, and we have the historical account. 
the setting. Luke is concerned not merely to impart some kind of spiritual experience, a kind of, look what I've experienced, everyone, and so should you. This is so often what we hear in our own day, but this is not what Luke was conveying. No, he's concerned about conveying the facts, historical, verifiable facts about the life of Jesus. And so Luke begins in verse 1 by saying, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now here we are reminded, aren't we, that... uh, Uh, The Roman Empire was the world superpower of this period of history. They ruled a vast empire through a highly organized system of states and provinces. Proof of this is found here in our text. In Rome's official decree for a registration extending all the way to small towns on the other side of the Mediterranean. And unlike some governmental policies that go forward, this one was actually successfully being carried out. The leader of the Roman Empire at this time was a man by the name of Gaius Octavius, who ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD. He was the grandnephew of the notable Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, of course, was murdered in 44 BC. And when he was, Gaius changed his name to Gaius Julius Caesar. Eventually, after defeating Antony and Cleopatra in battle, he became supreme ruler. And the Roman Senate conferred upon him the name Augustus, which means sublime and reverent one, the great one. As with Julius Caesar and the Caesars after him, Caesar Augustus had received divine status in his position. In fact, an ancient inscription reads like this, quote, Divine Augustus Caesar, son of a god, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. Does that sound familiar? We have politicians today that d- to declare similar things to this. Vote for me and I will change everything. I'll change the world. I'll make everything right for you. All problems will go away. Hope exists in the person of me. Your next whatever. President, politician, prime minister. This was the official decree. Caesar Augustus had this divine status in the minds of the government and in many of the people. It's why Christianity was in many ways a threat to them, not because they were going to rise up in political military might, but because they worshipped the King of Kings. This was the Caesar Augustus who issued the decree that the whole world should be registered. Now, why a registration? Well, uh, it shouldn't be too hard to figure out. Uh, they want an accurate account of the population to, uh, to figure out what kind of military might they had in the Roman Empire. Also, They wanted to update the official records of the Roman Empire, you guessed it, for tax purposes. And so Quirinius, who is the governor of Syria, a Roman province or state, assisted heavily with this census or registration. And again, and notice how Luke is concerned with the the, the minute details of what's happening at this time in history. So in verse 3, we learn that all went to be registered, each to his own town, that is, 
to the place of his birth and family. Now, Joseph, Mary's betrothed, was of the house and lineage of whom? Of David. This served to show Jesus' messianic status, making him a descendant of David. Therefore, Joseph and Mary went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, where they were living, and they made this 90-mile trek to the city of David called Bethlehem so that they could register. Now, this wouldn't have been an easy uh, journey for anyone, much less for Mary, who was already far along in her pregnancy. It is, in fact, not to be missed that they made the journey in order to obey Caesar's decree. Perhaps one of the reasons for Luke's inclusion of this story was to reinforce to the Roman authorities that Christianity was not a disruptive movement in Roman civil society. The early Christians were commanded to live peaceably and to pray for their rulers. Now, I'm not going to get in this morning, get into it, about when is it right for a people to rise up when there is a tyrannical government and they are doing certain kinds of things. That's a a massive debate and an important debate to have, isn't it? But what we see over and over again in the book of Luke, the other Gospels, as well as in the book of Acts, is this kind of reinforcement, and in Paul's epistles, this reinforcement that Christians are called to live peaceably and prayerfully and in subject to the governing authorities. Our commitment to God and His purposes do not excuse us from obeying the just laws of those whom God has ordained to rule over us. We are citizens of two kingdoms. Our citizenship ultimately is in heaven, but we also have an earthly citizenship. And as Christians, we live obediently to our earthly citizenship And we live obediently to our heavenly citizenship. And whenever the earthly citizenship asks us to do things which contradict our heavenly citizenship, which one do we obey? We obey God. Because we are first and foremost His citizens and His people. He receives our ultimate allegiance, doesn't He? The other crucial point that we must underscore here is that the Roman king's decree is really serving the greater and higher decree of the God of Israel, the ultimate sovereign king of kings. This is important. Caesar Augustus's decree is serving God's higher purpose. The invisible hand of God is all over this text. You see, his, his decree is serving God's higher purpose to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in order that his beloved son would be born in the city of David, just as was prophesied by Micah 700 years before. Indeed, Micah 5.2, in Micah 5.2, the prophet states this, quote, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days." This is one of the great things about being a Christian and believing in a sovereign God is that when earthly rulers and princes and kings and presidents and prime ministers are waving their wand and making all of these decrees and doing all of these things, they actually think that they're in control. And many of them who are ruling by fear and not by justice 
and honesty and integrity. They're ruling by fear because they want to hold on to their power. They actually think that they have the ultimate power. And we know as Christians that they do not. Amen? Our God is over all, and it's a great mystery. It's a great mystery, but the Lord is working out all things for his purposes. Luke wants us to see this. God is not hindered by the powerful nations or rulers of the earth. His purposes are served by them. And this should bring us a large measure of comfort in a day when we're always hearing about all the terrible things and the the terrorism and, and the wars and the rumors of wars, the international conflicts, all sorts of trouble. No, our great comfort is God's promise in Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things together for our good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The Roman decree for registration, the long and arduous trip for Joseph and pregnant Mary, it was all serving God's higher purpose. And dear friends, this is not only true on a high national or political level, but in the ordinary lives of ordinary people like us. God, through his sovereign will, is providentially weaving together an amazing tapestry filled with every event in our lives. And the weaving together of this tapestry is fulfilling God's sovereign, mysterious will. And this does not mean that God is culpable for your sin or mine. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, and I promise I'm not trying to open up a can of worms here. We don't have time for it. But what I want to say is, when we talk about God sovereignly weaving together the tapestry of our lives, we're not saying that God himself is causing us to sin or to blame for our sin. But as Augustine said, he in his divine mystery uses even our sin sinlessly for his own ends. And he's working these things in us as his people. Our suffering, our pain, our struggles, our suffering, our sin. He's using it all. And it never excuses sin or never makes God culpable for sin. We are always culpable for our own sins. But even there, God is at work. And he's ultimately using these things to sanctify us. And to cause us and to move us to exalt and praise his glorious wisdom and grace. And so even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our crises, even when loved ones have died or are greatly ill, we can join the Apostle Paul in Romans 11 when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So in God's providence... Mary and Joseph were where they were supposed to be in Bethlehem, the city of David. And verse 6 tells us that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. This brings us to our second heading. The king of glory is born in a cattle stall. Look with me now at verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Mystery of mysteries. The eternally begotten Son of God. 
becomes flesh and dwelt among us. Lancelot Andrews wrote that in the arms of Mary and Joseph was the eternal word without a word. The omnipotent, omniscient one was held tenderly in Mary's arms and nursed at her breast. The one through whom God the Father created the galaxies and upholds all things as a newborn baby with all the weaknesses and limitations that come with infancy. What a mystery. Messiah had come, not arrayed in strength and power and glory with mighty armies to defeat Rome, but as a tiny baby, as a little baby who would one day grow up and give his sinless life to redeem his guilty people. There are just a couple of things we should notice in these verses. First of all, let's consider where Jesus was born, where he was born. When Joseph and pregnant Mary arrived in Bethlehem, there was no space for them in the inn. And so Joseph's only alternative was to take shelter with the animals in the stable, or as some have conjectured, in a cave. One can only imagine how this must have pained Joseph not to be able to provide a decent place for his betrothed and for this birth. And then to have their firstborn baby born in this context. Now, I've mentioned it before about how overprotective we can be, especially with our firstborn child. Marla and I certainly were very protective when our firstborn was born. We were so careful to have things clean Someone would say, hey, can I hold her? Sure, go wash your hands first. And uh, we, of course, wanted to keep large animals away from our child. We weren't comfortable with dogs walking up and sort of licking our child in the face. There were all kinds of ways we wanted to protect our child. I could go on. But, you know, by the time you have your second child... You're so busy managing things, or your third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh child, eighth child. You're so busy managing things that, you know, you don't wash off the pacifier anymore. You just stick it back in there. You don't even care where it, unless unless it's fallen into a pool of chemicals or something. You're just not that worried about it. You stick it back in there. You want the crying to stop. Our children somehow survive. Our second children somehow survive all of that. But here was Joseph with his firstborn, and he was born in a smelly, dirty stable, or cave, as it were, and then placed in a feeding trough, presumably for cows or horses or sheep. One writer imagines that, quote, Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did during the birth, seeing her pain the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation, and the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for young Mary on the night of her travail. All that would make a man either curse or cry, end quote. The fact is, dear friends, what we are made to see here is that every one of us and our children were born in an environment a hundred times better than our Lord. 
And yet the one being born was the blessed Son of God, the Prince of Heaven, and it was all for a reason. And this leads us to the second point to consider, and that is why Jesus was born in this context. In our own catechisms, they focus on the the categories of Christ's humiliation and then his exaltation. And his humiliation always begins with his conception and his birth. It didn't start at the cross, although that was the climax of his humiliation. But it begins at his conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary and his birth in Bethlehem. And Jesus being born in a stable powerfully underscores the nature of Christ's ministry and his purpose for coming from heaven to earth. That is, that through his poverty, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we would become rich. Through his poverty, we would become rich. Rich. In other words, from the very beginning of his life, we are reminded that Jesus set aside his heavenly privileges, his, his heavenly glory. He humbled himself to dwell in our sinful and broken surroundings, and he was not given a place at the end. And during his earthly ministry, he had no place to, to lay his head so that, as Calvin says, heaven would be opened to us. Dear brothers and sisters, we need to see that the discomforts of the manger point us ultimately to the discomfort, discomforts of the cross. If we don't get this, we've missed the glorious message of Christmas. Indeed, we've missed the whole point of the gospel. Too often in liberal theology and mainline churches, we'll hear a lot about the sweet baby Jesus. We'll hear about God's solidarity with man. But Christmas ultimately leads us to Calvary. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand the good news of the gospel. Because Christ didn't save us. He didn't rescue us merely by becoming one of us. He didn't save us and rescue us merely by becoming human flesh and having solidarity with humanity. He saved us by perfectly obeying all the requirements of God's law because we have failed to do that, and we continue to. He came to fulfill all righteousness in our stead, and then as a perfect righteous substitute, as, as a sinless law keeper. He went all the way to Calvary for you and for me. Those precious, silky hands that clutched the hair of Mary as he was feeding on her breast were 33 years later, grown-up hands, hands of a carpenter, hands that healed and loved and touched sinners were crucified to a wooden cross. From the manger to the cross to the tomb and then raised up in glory, which is what this entire day is about, the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. It is the day of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all of it is together that which we confess as a church. It's why we confess the Apostles' Creed. And we don't just stop after born of the Virgin Mary. Because the gospel is together. 
And we remember it, all of it, together as we gather today to worship him. Now, this is the good news, that Christ became a ransom for many. The question is, how can what Jesus did so long ago apply to us? How can his virgin birth, perfect life, sacrificial death, and hell-conquering resurrection be applied to me when it happened so long ago? Well, the answer is by the Holy Spirit, who is not bound by space and time, and through the instrument of faith. It is by the Spirit of God, through the instrument, the gift of faith, by which what Christ did then can be received and rested in and applied now. The Holy Spirit takes what Christ has done and applies it to sinners through the gift of saving faith. And when God brings a sinner from death to life, from deadness in sin to life and forgiveness in Christ, he gives gifts. And those gifts are repentance and faith and righteousness and a right standing with God. Not because of anything we've done, but all because of what Christ has done in our, in our place. So, dear one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what this narrative is about. It's not a nice story to simply reflect upon this time of year. It's meant to call us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith, we receive full forgiveness for all of our sins. By faith, we receive imputed righteousness and everlasting life in His glorious presence. Apart from Him, however, however, we remain in our sin and our guilt. Apart from Him, we are without hope. So this Christmas narrative proclaims that there is hope in this dark, sin-torn world And it's found in the one who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And his name is Jesus, for he saves his people from their sins. Well, I began this message by sharing a story from McShane's memoirs about these two Moravian missionaries going into a leper colony. I want to end with a story about leprosy. In the mid-90s, I had the privilege of ministering in India. I talk about it a lot in this congregation. It was an important part of my own spiritual formation in the 90s. And on those trips to India, I had the opportunity to work in all uh, kinds of interesting settings. One of the more memorable settings was in a Christian orphanage called the Children's Home, where there were over 400 children These children were unique in that they all came from homes where their parents were suffering with leprosy or had died from leprosy. What I remember most about my time with them was the joy of the Lord that they exhibited. The joy of the Lord from the youngest to the oldest. These children were all being faithfully taught by the missionaries of what God had done for them in Jesus Christ. They were taught that to possess Christ by faith was to possess the greatest treasure in the world. And that the treasures of the world often distract people from Jesus Christ. In Christ, they were beneficiaries of an eternal inheritance that could never be taken away from them. And many of their parents who were dying of leprosy also had embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior. They had been healed of the greater leprosy of their sin, and they understood it like that. 
let us remember the true meaning of Christmas. The covenant-keeping love of God. The angel's visitation to Mary. The virgin birth in a stable. The cross of Calvary. Peace with God. Forgiveness of sins. And everlasting life. And like the shepherds in the fields who witnessed the glory and mighty praises of the heavenly host, notice what they did after this glorious occasion. They went and they spread the news. And it said, and those who heard them wondered. The question is this morning, dear ones, is as we hear this message, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, are we looking to share and to spread that message to our neighbors and to the nations of the world? This glorious news that the Savior has been born, these glad tidings of a Savior who was born in Bethlehem. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these glorious tidings that a Savior was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and that it applies to us today even as it did to the shepherds and all those who are around there in the first century. We thank you, Lord, for Christ, for his sinless life, for his atoning death, and for his hell-conquering resurrection. Oh, Lord, may we be found in him by grace through faith this Christmas day. In Jesus' name we pray.